The Canby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quiquitlam peoples. It is January 26, 2024, and there are 995 days until the Vancouver municipal election. This is the Canby Report. I'm Ian Bushfield. Today, I've got a special interview with Dennis Agar, founder and executive director of Movement Metro Vancouver Transit Users. This is Dennis Agar's new group to promote transit use in Metro Vancouver. We get into what the organization is, Dennis's background, and why the 49 is the bus that they are zeroing in on as the thing to champion first. Matthew will be back for a future episode where we'll dive into the park board, the mayor's budget task force, and everything else happening in Vancouver and the environs. First, as always, I have to plug our Patreon, patreon.com slash Report. Go become a supporter. We will send you a link to join our patron Slack channel where the conversation is always lively. Now, let me throw it over to that interview. Joining me now on the Cambry Report is Dennis Agar, founder, executive director of Movement, the Van- Metro Vancouver Transit, I don't have the website, Transit Advocacy Nonprofit Organization that's new. Hi, Dennis. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I didn't totally botch that name, did I? You did, but I'm not going to call you on it. Okay. So you launched this nonprofit recently, which is part of why I wanted to have you on. I also heard you on Helen Loy's awesome Urbanism in Vancouver podcast a couple times. And we haven't shouted that out on here, and I have to get Helen on to talk about that. But we got you on because transit is in the news. Right now, there's a big strike. I don't think either of us have too much to say about that, but we can get into that. And you have your organization... And we really want to talk about the the number 49 bus. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm so glad you brought it up. Yeah. But before we get into all of that, I think some people will know you via Twitter because you're quite active on there, or at least you were when I was, and in the Vancouver discussions. But you had a kind of cool job before you quit and decided to launch this transit union, essentially. Not union, but movement. Before this, I worked at TransLink for 10 years, and it was my dream job. I studied planning out in Ontario, and I just started applying for jobs all across Canada. And to my great surprise, TransLink offered me a position. I thought I was going to have to spend a few years in Fort McMurray or something and put in my time. But no, I came right out here. And, you know, when you're new and young in TransLink, you go to farmer's markets and put up the bus bike rack and show people how to use it. And you answer angry phone calls and stuff like that. And I really kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to riders and that kind of thing. But eventually I moved up and I worked on the rapid bus. I was one of the first people on the team that kind of designed the rapid buses as they are today. You know, the frequency, the stop schedule, like that kind of stuff. And then transitioned into a team called Bus Speed and Reliability, which was a new thing TransLink hadn't really done much of before, where it had, it put together a pot of money and kind of the logic behind it was, uh, we're spending so much on these buses being stuck in traffic. The The latest number, I think, is $80 million a year that TransLink puts towards buses just sitting stationary in traffic. What if we spent a few million dollars in capital 
and tried to get those buses unstuck. And so, yeah, we were, we were the team that were trying to convince the cities to take the money and put in bus lanes and queue jumps and bus bulbs and all the fun little things that speed buses up. And you had some success with that based on some of the numbers I've seen on various buses getting less, less stuck, I guess. Yeah, you know, we did. Bus stop balancing was one of the programs that was successful in the sense that, you know, we, we adjusted the stop spacing and the outcome was that TransLink saved enough money to launch a whole new bus route to the River District, which was an area that had been crying out for bus service for a while. But on the whole, I, I was pretty disappointed. Like the last year, out of the $8 million that TransLink had to give away to these cities, and it, it wasn't a cost share program, it was just 100% like we will pay for this thing if you do it. Out of 8 million, only 3.5 was applied for, less than half. And what I sensed was that there's a lot of fear, especially in leadership at municipalities and amongst councils, a lot of fear from motorists that there would be a big backlash if buses were made faster and more reliable. And so that's kind of was the, a big impetus to starting movement is that hey, we need a front lash. We need, we need transit riders to be a bigger part of this regional conversation. So when someone says like, hey, I don't want bus lanes here, then we can come and kind of overwhelm them and say, listen, there are all these people that really need this. They need to get to work on time. And so that's what I was basically just going to ask is this <laughs> movement, Metro Vancouver Transit Riders, is grew out of those experiences, I guess, working at TransitLink and seeing that the barriers aren't necessarily on that side but at the political level, locally, provincially, federally as well? Or is it mostly yeah, the local? Yeah, there are, there are barriers everywhere that we're gonna have fun pushing and, and nudging and everywhere, right? Like all of this is playing out on the backdrop of ridership, unprecedented ridership and funding that is basically flat. Like a lot of TransLink's funding sources are disappearing. Like, you know, the gas tax revenue is going down and blah, blah, blah. And so ultimately TransLink needs help from someone to provide the level of service that is being demanded out there on the streets. The queues of people waiting for the bus will give you a very clear idea of how much more money TransLink needs. But on top of that, I think in the short term, there are a lot of things that municipalities and the Ministry of Transportation can do to speed up buses. And a faster bus is a cheaper bus to run. And so it's a win-win-win in the sense that people get to where they're going faster, it's more reliable, but then it saves TransLink money, which we can then go to TransLink and say, reinvest that into our neighborhood. Whichever neighborhood that put in the bus lanes, we want you to take all your savings and make make this route more reliable, or have more capacity so we can address the crowding. And I think that's a perfect point to bring us to the 49, which is, I guess, your first campaign, the like pinnacle example of a problematic bus. So the 49 is the Metro Town to UBC bus. I was joking before we hit record that I was talking with some friends yesterday about like the last election in Kennedy Stewart's wild out of nowhere SkyTrain loop that would basically have replaced the 49 except like it's so hard to imagine putting it what did I figure it was like 20 more kilometers of SkyTrain when they can't even get the last eight from Arbutus to UBC funded and yeah. that was that was a weird plan but the 49 is an issue right you got a lot of major stops along there, but mm -hmm. maybe you can tell us because you've talked to students, you've talked to others, like, why is it so bad? Yeah, you know, the 49 is interesting. There's like, if we want to, this is the podcast where we can do deep dives and I can go into a little bit of the history, but you know, Vancouver's transit network 
is designed, it used to be streetcars. A lot of the routes that we're used to seeing used to be streetcar routes. And they're like fingers extending out from downtown. So a lot of these north-south routes on Victoria and Maine and Fraser used to be streetcars. And that's the direction that people went, like in and out of the downtown core. And when the Expo Line and the Canada Line were built, when crucially when we had both of them, all of a sudden we had these really fast ways to get in and out of the downtown and to Surrey and Burnaby. And the routes that connected to those sky trains became more important. It became more important, like, oh, wow, I can get downtown way faster if I take a bus to the Canada line and then in than my old route on the eight or the three. And so since 2009, we've just seen gradual increases and increases in growth in these east-west routes in Vancouver. And they're on streets that were not designed for it. Like, these are streets with almost no shops. There's a lot of just Vancouver specials and they're narrow and the road surface is poor, sidewalks are poor, the stops sometimes don't have shelters because there isn't even the, the, it wasn't designed for room for things like that. Anyway, so the 25, the 33, the 41, the 49, and the 100 are just doing gangbusters. But the 49 has really jumped out in the sense that, I guess on 41st, we have the rapid bus now, the R4, which is doing crazy numbers. It's now the second busiest route after the B line, the 99. But then next on the list is the 49. It's still a local route. It makes all the stops. It's pretty slow. And it runs on a street that's only four lanes wide. And two of those four lanes are, for the most part, taken up with parking. Free, 24-hour, unlimited parking. But meanwhile, we have this bus route that's moving 30, probably 35 now, thousand passenger trips a day on a weekday, which is double what Via Rail does, like Via Rail Canada. The 49 moves twice as many people. So I think it's a crucial piece of national infrastructure if we're putting it on those scales. But ultimately, it passes through some of the areas that are the most diverse parts of the region and the most transit dependent. If you look at the census numbers on who is riding transit versus cycling versus driving, the areas that the 49 passes through in East Vancouver especially have the highest transit usage. And so what we're hearing from those riders, we put up posters in the area to get them to fill out a survey. And we went there and we've talked to riders and um, it really aligns with what I saw as a planner at TransLink. I've been seeing these numbers go up on the 49, um, the ridership. And what that means is massive overcrowding, um, people getting left behind by full buses. We, we heard from people that were left behind by four or five full buses in a row. They're just standing there waiting bus after bus is passing them and it says sorry bus full on the front which is maybe the worst thing in the universe and the they're also pretty unreliable because the buses only really have one lane and sometimes cars are turning left in that lane and then it just backs everything right up and so a big part of this campaign is is really just demonstrating that i think we can do better with the buses that we have it might have been really exciting for you know mayor stewart to propose a big SkyTrain on 49th and it will be exciting at some point in the future but like even if everyone wanted it and we were just going flat out it would still take at least a decade and so what movement is really focused on are like what are the things we can do now that it doesn't cost a lot of money to put in bus lanes you know what I'm saying like it what it costs is politics like it, we, we need to get everyone on the same page and push for it and then and that's really the main barrier. So is it just a matter of taking some parking away and marking it as a bus lane? Or like, what is the, what are the steps that would make this route better? Yeah. I mean, I suspect that movement will push for 
the gold standard best thing possible for 49th and there'll be lots of back and forth with the city of Vancouver and the city of Burnaby and UBC who are the jurisdictions along the route and then we'll land somewhere in the middle but there are lots of tools and bus lane is probably the most prominent one right and it's also the cheapest right like you put up some steel signs paint some diamonds on the street and you're done but there's other cool things we can do like for instance we'll see some in some parts of the city a right turn signal on the signal heads so that it flushes out those right turners from the bus lane and then the bus can just fly forward so that i think could be used to great effect on 49th we've also seen left turn bands in a lot of places obviously you know we don't want to go too crazy with left turn bands but just do it in a sensitive way to the context there'll be some places where things will be more difficult like whenever you have to pour concrete it usually takes at least a year like it takes longer to design and, and do things and so there are places like at the corner of marine and 41st the 49 passes through that intersection and there could be some room for a queue jump there and then and then there's some other fun stuff too like at the university of british columbia they actually have a system that uses AI to determine the signal timing. It's already in place and it, it sees how many cars are waiting, how many bikes are waiting, how many people are waiting, and then it determines which of these cars is a bus, but it's just not switched on. We could switch it on. We could, it's kind of like a dial. Like you, if you crank it to a hundred, then as soon as it spots a bus, it's like, okay, I need to do everything I can to get this bus through. So, and that's, it's kind of a pilot project. And so that's the kind of thing that we could work with UBC to switch on. Yeah. Like, and actually before there's one more thing. And that is the, the one thing that's really in TransLink's court, which is all door boarding. We have all door boarding on all the B lines and the 99 and the 143 for some reason. It's kind of a smattering of routes, but lots of other transit agencies in the world have all door boarding system wide and allowing people to board at the back door really speeds things up and it also makes things more comfortable because you don't have a crush of people mm -hmm. at the front of the bus you have people evenly distributed throughout the bus all the way down and the bus is already so, set up for it right already set up for it it's just a little programming tweak yeah. yeah you mentioned the light timing and i remember when i first moved to vancouver that like granville street lights were timed such that you could get from like the u.s border to downtown without hitting a red like it would go if there was no traffic in the right thing, but it shows like yeah. how I think you could even get to like the Lionsgate Bridge if you were really clipping and, you know, hitting all the luck. But yeah. it's like such a priority that has been given to cars in our society. Right. right. And these little tweaks won't actually impact vehicle traffic that much. The parking will come back to in a second because I think that's where you'll see your biggest mm -hmm. opposition. But like mm -hmm. advancing buses to save them a few minutes might cost seconds on a car. Sure, exactly. And the bigger picture of that, of course, is that this region is changing really quickly. I mean, whether anyone likes it or not, I happen to like a lot of the changes that are happening. You know, we've got 70,000 new people coming to the region every year, and I think it's breathing life into this region in an exciting way. And ultimately what that means is that we can't continue to get around in the like bulky ways that we have been getting around over the last few decades, right? Like the, we just crossed a threshold at some point where we need to rely a lot more on transit. And we know how long it takes to build SkyTrain. And, and so I think really the kind of the, the best outcome for everyone is that more and more people get on transit so that the tradespeople who can't ride transit have clearer streets. And, and so 
you know, you know, with the new provincial legislation around more density in the cities, you know, again, that's exactly the kind of thing that's good for transit. And, and it, it's going to just take a little bit of a reconfiguration of our streets to get to that kind of, to, you know, to get to the level of transit service that we see when we're on vacation, right? Like when we're in Europe or Asia and we're like, oh man, it's so great. I can just take transit anywhere. I don't have to think about it. Like that's what we're getting close to. And we just need to go the little extra inch, which is like bustling. So what do you say to the people who are living along 49th who are used to parking there, are used to that convenience of just having their car right outside their house? Because that I suspect is going to be your largest opposition and the like spill on to the neighbors who are like, well, now those cars are going to park in my neighborhood. Yeah, I think that is going to be really a big focus for us, right? Is, is having that conversation in a sensitive way. The way I want to do it, we are uh, going to have like a physical presence at the bus stops on 49th, right? Like we'll put up a little tent and we'll give out coffee and we'll just like become a part of the community and make friends with people and, and build that relationship. And so one of the things we'll be doing while we're there is getting riders to complain because city, the city and and elected officials often don't hear complaints from riders. I think this is something I've heard from, even from other riders that do understand how power works, that they're just like, ah, I always tell my friends to complain. So anyway, so we'll be getting a lot of complaints, but also we'll be getting members and volunteers. And so what I'd like to do is have the volunteers from that group go door to door with us on 49th and, and talk to the people behind the door. Because I think at the end of the day, a lot of the people that we will see on the doorstep are either people that do ride the 49 themselves, you know, based on the stats out there, like, you know, 30, 40 plus percent of people commute by transit. And that's usually an undercount in the census. So we'll go to the door, we'll talk to people. A lot of them will already be familiar with the 49, either from their own experience or their mother's experience or their children's experience. And then know how bad it is. And so they'll already be primed and we can say to them, listen, hey, we ride the 49. We know how convenient it is for you to have your car out here, but we're fighting to make changes to the 49. And if, if we all do it and we all band together, the 49 will be a much better option for people in this community. And I think, you know, it's it's a demonstration of your neighborliness. Like it's it's something we can do to work together to just, you know, change change the lane regulations. And, you know, we'll have to park on the side street. We'll have to park in the garage but it's something that we do together for, us, for ourselves as a community. Like that's kind of the pitch. Have you already had any feedback from politicians or people with power on this? Because this is clearly an issue you're passionate about and I'm sure anyone who's like come close to you has heard about the 49. Yeah, it's, in a good is, way. Unfortunately, <laughs> head on, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, your, your question about like having heard from politicians about this idea, I think it's, it's confirmed a few of our hunches in the terms of like, yes, it's scary. Like it's something that a politician wouldn't just like trample into like, 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 all right, I'm going to ban, you know, parking on 49th. No, it's, it's something that they see the benefits and they see the potential opposition. And so when I explain to them, like what, what movement, what we'd like to do is be a snowplow for this idea, right? Like, like clear a path so that it's, it's politically acceptable for them to do. Because I, I honestly think like, you know, there are already a few little bus lanes on 49th and those were done at the expense of parking. And, you know, the city of Vancouver and TransLink did their traditional kind of outreach process, which was pretty slim. 
And I've heard from people in the community, like they were approached at the Gurdwara saying like, oh, like what's the deal with these bus lanes? Like, I, I feel like I wasn't informed, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I think that these are people that aren't necessarily opposed to transit. They just kind of felt blindsided. And, and so I, I think we can really do it right here. And, and so that people won't be blindsided. Yeah, I really like this theory of change that you're operating with, this real grassroots approach to organizing and getting in the community and building that movement. Like there's lots of different ways, because I work in nonprofits, there's lots of different ways you can change policy. And if you're not in power, it's really hard, right? Uh, but yeah. people are power when there's enough of you. And so I think I'm very optimistic about what you're doing here. And I see a lot of potential, right? Because if you are successful at this one, like racking up wins is so important. And if you can do this, I'm assuming you have bigger plans than just like one bus route at a time, right? Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. I'm hopeful that we can rack up a win on 49th. What I think anyone that's been watching the stats <laughs> on transit, maybe there are like 12 of us that have been watching the stats that TransLink publishes year after year is the really shocking ridership growth in Surrey and not the parts of Surrey that are getting newly built like Sullivan and Clayton and whatever. These are parts of Surrey that have been built out for 40 or 50 years. Like the area basically between Scott Road and King George Boulevard and, you know, 108th and 72nd, that, that just main chunk of Surrey. And TransLink has actually been cutting service in Vancouver to move service into that area to address the massive growth. And yeah, there's almost no transit priority and there are, you know, constant pass ups. You know, driving around in Surrey is, a, is an interesting experience these days because you're seeing this really suburban landscape with hedges and narrow sidewalks and a tiny little bus stop pole. And then a queue of eight people standing at it on Sunday at like 10 a.m. Like what is going on? This is becoming a transit city despite all of its infrastructure. So yeah, I think a really big focus for us is going to be that part of Surrey, routes like the 335, the 323, really getting those to be some of the best routes in the region. I think we can do it. Let's zoom back. Like one of the bigger challenges that TransLink is facing, and you alluded to it, and it's evidenced by the strike that's happening right now with the coastal mountain bus companies, mm -hmm. operators, and likely we'll see an ex escalation of that next week is mm. funding, right? Is this challenge of there's increasing demands from labor that, you know, people can have their opinions on that, about the justification mm -hmm. for, but people do need to eat and be paid a reasonable wage mm -hmm. for their work. And at the same time, TransLink says we have less gas tax mm -hmm. as people are uh, switching to EVs and driving less and switching to transit. Uh, provincial funding uh, is a challenge. Fares only cover so much. Um, is the solution to making transit a sustainable, like it's never 100% self-funded, but is it just a matter of getting the province and feds to cut more I checks? I mean, the, the sustainable solution, I think, like even zooming out a layer past who, who funds it, is that politicians see transit riders as a group to be courted, right? Like when they're campaigning, that they see transit riders and they're like, oh, nuts, I need to say things that they're going to like, as opposed to like, usually announcements about transit these days are more like, what is this shiny thing that looks nice, even to motorists? Like, oh, yeah, a train, like a train to Langley. Cool. That everyone can understand how cool that is. 
But when we are, you know, we're quickly moving into a situation where a big percentage of the voter base in this region understands the experience of riding a bus. And so I want those those promises to flip over to being like, yeah, let's make sure we have 100% shelter coverage and like, uh, like shelters ever stop. Um, let's, let's move to a situation where, um, you know, TransLink is in a position to react to overcrowding quickly. Like if overcrowding pops up on a route, then like whack-a-mole, they can just slam it down. They have like a little reserve of funding to do that. Um, so ultimately that's why I got into organizing and left planning because I, I think that it's, it's about power and it's about riders having, posing a threat to re-election to people. But zooming into that, I really hate the kind of the Spider-Man pointing at each other meme of like, oh, the municipalities think that the province should pony up and the province thinks that the federal should start finally providing operating funding to transit. And the feds are like, oh, this is not our responsibility. Look at the British North America Act. And, and it just goes around and around and around. Like, that's got to stop. And I want to give some flowers to whoever will decide to stop it. You know what I mean? Like, we're also out there. We'll be happy to just, like, thank and make a little to-do about whoever decides to, to pony up and fund transit. Because it really doesn't matter where it comes from, with the possible exception of fares. I've been hearing rumblings of a really potentially big fare increase. And that is not good. That is exactly the wrong place for transit funding to come from, especially like, you know, we talk to people in Surrey that have to pay that three zone fare like that is a killer. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, you know, income tax, property tax, wherever it needs to come from, basically just not fares. <laughs> just and just not another like regional referendum on, you know, funding. yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that recently, like. Yeah, the referendum was a bit of a disaster. I wonder how it would play out today. I think it would play out differently because of we have a lot more riders and the narrative around TransLink is different than it was back then. The politics of it are different. But I also think about, you know, the little referendums that are on the municipal ballot. It's maybe it's more of a Vancouver thing. I don't know if other cities have it, but there's on the back of the ballot, there's a little referendum that says, yeah. will you authorize Trans or city of Vancouver to borrow this much money to build a pool or something? Other cities... You know, in the U.S., they use a lot more referendums, and in some places it's gone sideways, but perhaps the American city that's most similar to Vancouver is Seattle, because it's right there, and they have had a mind-blowing success with transit referendums, specifically in the city of Seattle. Not a regional referendum, not a provincial mm. referendum, a municipal referendum, and they have been getting money and money and money to put in all of these bus speed and reliability measures that I'm talking about, and they've kind of left ahead of us. And one of the surprising things is that they weren't happy with the transit levels, transit service levels from King County Metro, which is the whole region's transit. And so they raised money through a referendum to go to the transit agency and say, only use this money to only increase service levels within the borders of the city of Seattle, yeah. which yeah. I thought was really surprising and innovative. And, and you know, I wonder, I wonder what is the path forward for a city like Vancouver because the way that the mayor's council is structured, it's really, what's the word? Like it's like centripetal force, like where you spin something and this, everything gets blown to the, out the edges. Periphery. And, mm -hmm. and so what I mean is that with the pressure to get consensus at the mayor's council, which is the body that governs TransLink, 
you need to make every municipality happy, including Maple Ridge and Langley and Lions Bay and Belcara. And so that usually means that a lot of investments go to those edge municipalities and the service in Vancouver crumbles. And Surrey too, really. The two big municipalities where the majority of ridership is. And so anyway, I think about referendums in that context. One other question I had on funding is one we you know you alluded to some of the housing changes and we could talk more about that if you want but one of the big things is coming down the pipe is TransLink's ability to enter the real estate mm. market possibly as a funding source and like maybe just touch on how you're feeling about that as a future for the agency and if there's any role for movement, I guess, in championing or supporting some of those developments as they come down. Yeah, I think that would be a good idea to, to champion. Generally, it's good that TransLink is a developer. Like, I think we're all probably looking at Hong Kong, whose transit agency is actually more of a developer than a transit agency. Like, they don't receive public funding, the last I understood, that received free land from the government and they would develop the land with like cookie cutter 80 story towers and that is what pays for the transit operation they they generate their own ridership which pays for it but then they also rent out the buildings i just don't think translink will be able to do it to that scale like the scale of money that translink needs to mm -hmm. meet the ridership demand that we're looking at it it would have to do a whole lot of development to get that done and so yeah so i just don't see it happening but that said, it's exciting to see all the development that happens next to transit, whether it's done by TransLink or anyone else. And I think a, a piece of this that people don't really understand, like some people will say like, oh, do, do we really have the capacity in the transit system to accommodate all these buildings? And it is just the opposite. Because what I would love to get people to start thinking about is, is the network effects of having things next to transit. So like if you think about all of the places that you go in a normal week like you might go to work every day and school every day and you know the grocery store once a week and then maybe like once every few weeks you go to the pet store and once every few weeks you go to this like chiropodist or whatever like you, you you just list all the places you have to go and you think about what modes you could use to get to those things and and you know, I, I'm, I'm missing even friends and family right like you go see friends and family every mm -hmm. once in a while and so the more of that density we have near transit, the more of those things get knocked off of the car list and put onto the transit list. And that's what's really exciting to me is that like the more of your friends, the more of your family that lives next to bus or SkyTrain, it, it, it really grows the system in an in a exponential way. Like it, it's, it's similar to like social media platform. Like when, you know, MySpace just started, being the first member of MySpace didn't really do you much, right? Like, because you're only talking to yourself. Mm -hmm. And the second member, that's cool. But then every additional member of the social media platform makes it way cooler, like more than just one person's worth of coolness, because it really, it becomes a place, it becomes a party, right? And that is what transit-oriented development does. And it really builds that political support for more transit which is the way that we will get out of this climate change debacle that we're in where personal vehicles, like personal transportation, is the number one subsector in BC in terms of climate change emissions. And I think you see that compounding effect happen 
all the way down the housing legislation that was brought in, right? Even with the multiplexes, the houses that are near 15-minute bus stops, which mine isn't, I only get 30-minute buses out in this corner of Coquitlam, which I haven't had to deal with since I lived in Edmonton. (laughs) Even there, I was near White Ave, and I had like half-decent bus service Mm -hmm. along that stretch. But, you know, we're allowing more density near places that people can get to easily, Mm -hmm. which as you say, just follows logically for all of these different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And it really like, you know, another way to think about it is like, if you live a transit focused lifestyle, like when was the last time you had to go out to Langley? Like I find as a parent, there are things that I have to go out to Langley for because like generally as a parent, you're expected to own a car. Like that's the way things are designed. And the more parents we can have on transit, the more a service provider, like a, like a therapist or, you know, a play place or like, I don't know, like a maternity store, like they'll be like, oh, our customers are over there. We need to move mm-hmm. onto the transit network. Like that's really when things start kicking into high gear. And actually Vancouver is special for that because we have a, a Home Depot on the SkyTrain. Like that's something that you have a Costco on a yeah, SkyTrain. Yeah, people lose their minds when they come to Vancouver and they see that, and they're like, "Oh, like you guys are so advanced." And to a certain degree, they're right. But like, it we we have a head start, but we can really capitalize that on that. And like, we're seeing now IKEAs on transit in Toronto, like little IKEAs, mm-hmm. where you can get things delivered if you have like if you order online. Like, yeah, I want to see. I, I don't. I don't want everyone to shop at a corporate store. That's not my point. My point <laughs> is just that we want corporates to have corporate stores to have to court us as transit riders. That's when we'll know we've made it. Touching off the funding, I want to come around the other side on the funding question, mm-hmm. which is, you start a nonprofit, and the first question people are going to ask you, or I guess now the question after thirty-five minutes that I'm going to ask you is, who's funding you? <laughs> Where's your dark money coming from? Because it's you got to really. People can't see this because we're not recording the video, but you have a fantastic sweater that's in some of your videos on your YouTube channel that people can check out that says movement all over it in bright colors. It's got a bus on your <laughs> chest there. Where's the cash coming from? Well, I paid for this hoodie. And if you want us to make more, you should email us, hello at transitmovement.ca. But that's a great question. I'm in a really privileged position. Like that's, there's no other way to say it. Like my wife actually quit her job a few years ago to start a nonprofit and we were living on my salary alone. And then it's doing better now. And so like, it's not in the startup phase anymore. And so we can kind of switch places and now I'm the unstable one that's not really earning anything. (laughs) But that said, we're looking for money. So any listeners of the pod that really are interested in what we're doing, like ultimately it would be cool to get individual donations and we've been getting some really generous people who have started donating as individuals. But what we're looking for are grants from big granting bodies. And, and this is the model that groups like ours follow. In other places, it's, it's much more developed in the U.S. If you look at any major city in the U.S., they have a group just like Movement that gets, you know, major, you know, gets a couple hundred thousand dollars a year from whatever local rich billionaire exists in that city. So, like, if you're that billionaire... Call us up, because ultimately what would be really incredible is to have a staff and have a group of organizers that we pay from the communities that they're working in that can really connect with their peers and the institutions there and, and that kind of thing. And, and so, yeah, we're looking for that kind of institutional money. And 
it's it's a weird kind of movement, right? Because you're a movement because you're unlikely to get offered the sketchier, like the oil and gas company is not going to come to you and offer. But are you thinking or have you thought about whether there are any kinds of donations you might turn down? Like there are YIMBY movements, for example, that get accused of being developer shills because they may have accepted, you know, money from those groups in the past. I'm not naming any specific ones, but that kind of thing exists. Yeah, I mean, there are probably some organizations that if I had to think through, you know, their ties to, you know, the tar sands or yeah, mineral extraction might be a little bit dodgy that we might not accept money from. But the big one, I think, is developers. And I think we would accept money from developers on the understanding that they don't really have any role in in setting our, our campaigns and our agenda. But ultimately, like, we're we're fighting for better transit, right? Like... Whoever wants to help us do that, I, I want their help, right? Because we're so undeveloped in this in this region. Like, you look at groups like Riders Alliance in New York and Transit Alliance Miami and Transit Matters in Boston. These are really similar groups, and they have staff of, like, 5, 10, 20 people. Like, that's where we need to get to build this, this power for riders. And actually, Trajectoire Quebec is the group in Montreal. And they have a really big staff because the province of Quebec funds groups to lobby the province for better mm. transit. And Trajectoire Quebec, they were saying they're in a building and right next to them is Pedestrians Quebec. <laughs> and like, you know, like yeah. there's this whole sector that's funded by the province. So if anyone who's an MLA who's listening to this likes that idea, please call us or email us. Yeah, I guess you could go for gaming grant money, but that's not as direct funding route and you have to be a bit more established probably i know in europe the european union actually sets aside a lot of money for ngos to lobby the (laughs) eu kind of as a it's actually a counterbalance to the corporate influence they get so they're like we'll fund greenpeace to counteract the oil industry who's also there and it's like i guess that's an option instead of banning them all but (laughs) it's i get you know more voices rather than less so there's interesting approaches Mm -hmm. And I do wish you well for the funding. I bet groups like the Vancouver Foundation will be super interested. Are you considering going a charitable route? This is getting into the more like nitty gritty questions of nonprofit organizing. That is my own background. Oh, yeah. that's Maybe someone listening will care. I think, yeah. (laughs) To the three of you that are left, I don't think so. I think just in the nature of our activities might preclude the ability for us to become a charity directly. Um, but that's that's a little bit down the road. Like usually you need a, a bit of precedent, like a few years of organization before you can become a charity. Um, if there are organizations out there that want to donate to movement that have to give their money to a registered charity, there are groups out there that we're working with that will help help us access that kind of money. So don't that let that be a barrier to you sending an email to hello at transitmovement.ca to send us money we could talk about that but anyway yeah the answer is probably no we're probably not going to become a charity just because of what we do all right i just had a couple other questions from our slack that kind of touch on stuff we've already touched on from our patrons let me actually pull them up so i can give credit that's exciting i didn't even think about that you put out a little call on slack I posted my picture of the stickers you sent me because you had in your first newsletter that anyone can get stickers if they send you 
their private address. That is true. Or I guess a post office box, but yeah. Shreyas asked, how do you plan to address different levels of government? We touched on that a little, but I think the question is... Yeah. You know, one you thing know, I'll, I can add to that is that the we're in conversation with a few other groups in Canada about targeting the federal government. Because right now, you know, TransLink and basically anyone else that cares about transit is really trying to get the federal government to start giving operating dollars. Like the federal government has always given money to build a new SkyTrain. But when it comes to operating that SkyTrain, there's nothing. And so it seems like there's progress happening for, you know, at least this current Liberal government to do that. It'll be an interesting lift if the government changes federally to try and get them to follow through on those plans to give operating dollars for transit. But it's an interesting, like, outcome. It's it's also really bad in the states where the feds will give things they can cut ribbons, give money to ribbon cutting projects and then mm -hmm. walk away. But what, one thing we'll see, an example of that is in York region in the suburbs of Toronto. They have something called the Viva, which is this really shiny, fancy bus service. And they have stations, like mega stations in the bus stops in the middle of the road. Like it's uh, totally separated. It's as close as you can get to a SkyTrain, but using buses on the surface. Offboard fare payment, all the cool things, signal priority. And they run at 30 minute frequency <laughs> because they don't have the operating dollars to run it. <laughs> Oh, I remember when I was a student at the University of Alberta and we could get a lot of money to build new buildings. Mm. We have fancy new medical buildings, fancy new engineering buildings. But then like one of the new medical research facilities was like a ghost town. It was an empty building because <laughs> there was no staff to work it. Oh, no. <laughs> and I think it's gotten a bit better since then. But mm. it's that same problem across all of this country. Uh, <laughs> Owen asks the Bus Rapid Transit BRT 10-year plan. How do we make it all happen immediately? The ambition. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess maybe if Movement's membership or like email newsletter grew to like 1 million people, I bet we could do that. The BRT plan is really exciting. And yeah, there's only two or three routes that are happening in the first phase. And yeah, it would be so great if it happened immediately, but it would really involve a provincial government feeling that they had to do everything they could to make transit riders happy because the sky would fall on them if they didn't that's those are the conditions that would be needed <laughs> oh yeah looking i covered some of the transport 2050 stuff out of translink and some of their big plans and it's they're always so inspiring until mm -hmm. you realize how many are just like funding contingent and yeah. like what do you see coming next that TransLink is act like, is the gondola actually happening? It feels like it's getting closer. The gondola is so perplexing to me. Yeah, there's some, some great people at TransLink that are um, working on the design and bringing it forward and it's coming together and it's, it's going to be a really incredible project when it's done in terms of the amount of benefit it provides to riders, like how much faster service it provides to riders than the current bus. And it's just been crickets on the funding front, right? Like, it's not even that expensive of a project in transit terms. Like, wh where is the money? I, I, I honestly have been asking people that because I don't know where the money is for the gondola. It needs to happen. I guess it may or may not be coming in this spring's budget from the province. Are you hoping for anything specific? And I guess maybe we'll... That would be my second last question. I hope that... The, the number one thing I want to see in that budget is way more funding for bus service. I would even prioritize that over the gondola because there are people that are just really, really getting a bad experience. You know, they're just getting left behind constantly by these full buses. 
and and so we really need provincial funding or funding from someone to run the level of bus service that this this region really deserves. Well, the final and probably most important question, Dennis, is what do people need to do? I really want people to go to transitmovement.ca and sign up for our email list. You can also see links to our social media pages on there, and please follow those if, you, if you'd like to. But once you join our email list, we'll kind of clue you into what's happening, and we're seeking volunteers, people that are willing to go canvas, people that are, you know, familiar with nonprofit administration, people that are, you know, connected in their own communities and, and willing to kind of, kind of talk up transit. Those are the kinds of people that we would be really grateful to hear from. And, and yeah, and any elected officials as well. <laughs> Let's throw that out there. I bet you're listening. Please feel free to reach out to our website again is transitmovement.ca and the email if you want to send an email direct is hello at transitmovement.ca. Great. And you're on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Blue Sky, and Mastodon. I see along yeah. the bottom there. All those links are there. <laughs> we'll put the links in the show notes as well. Close off. Can be report as we usually do with a Vancouver Auto, and you wanted to bring us a special one. Going back to the 49, this was a story from... Ali Turner in Vancouver is awesome earlier this year, and I don't think we covered it. Maybe we did, but we'll do it again. Tell us about the Gorilla Plaques. Yeah, you know, the 49 uh, is also interesting because it was fought for. It was a thing that it wasn't forthcoming from the government. You know, the city didn't have those cross routes at all back in the day. And so recently, this year, or sorry, last year, 2023, some really shiny, nice plaques showed up on 49th Avenue, just outside of Brecca is one at 49th and Fraser. And the plaque says, residents' political lobbying and petitions provided the much needed 49th Avenue bus route, which we began on March 21st, 1975. Who made that plaque? I have no idea. I have heard a rumor that there's a high school nearby that has the capability to make plaques like that, but that's the only interesting thing I've heard, I love them. I think there should be more transit history on lampposts in this region, and I'm grateful to the people that fought for it. Absolutely. They're fantastic. They're still standing, aren't they? They yeah, didn't get ripped so. out. That's really cool. Yeah. Dennis, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. And good My luck. My pleasure, and thank you so much for the coverage.